Welcome back to a Love Like This podcast. We are so glad you are here. Join us as we share the stories, memories, and messages that help shape not just our lives, but the lives of our incredible guests. In this limited series, we wanted to invite our friends and family who are all secretly incredible to share their stories, life lessons, and advice. We hope that you, the person listening to this, would be encouraged by everything these amazing people have to say. Let this be a reminder that there are people right now, right beside you with stories, wisdom, and knowledge. Pull up a chair, grab a coffee, and welcome to our neighborhood. Hey folks, today sure is an interesting day. For the first time ever, our dad, Terry Johnson, hops on a mic and helps guide an absolutely incredible conversation with his good friend, Peter Graham. So incredible, in fact, that this episode of the Neighbourhood series will be quite a lot longer than our usual length. I have a feeling, though, you aren't going to mind. Peter is almost 78 years old, and so we figured our usual 30 minutes may be a stretch to fit his lifetime of wisdom in. Alongside many things, Peter spends most of his days guiding older people to a retirement that is fulfilling and well-lived. But don't leave yet if you're not a pensioner. A few years ago, Peter was given six days to live. He had and still has stage four cancer. It was a 100% death rate at the time, 100%. Or in another way, you are absolutely, unquestionably going to die. Now, for all of you listening, if you can answer this question, feel free to stop listening, jump off, do what you gotta do. But if you can't, you better stick around. What do you do when a doctor says to you, we will handle everything, all you need to do is stay alive. Well, uh, Peter, thank you very much for coming on the show today. I know you're a very long-time friend and mentor to my dad, and so I know he's very excited to be talking to you. I don't know too much about you or your story, aside from what dad will introduce your amazing MDRT presentation. So I'm very excited to hear a little bit uh, more about you and you know what you've been through and what you have to share. So dad, would you like to introduce Peter and, and how you know him? Sure. Well, Peter, thanks um, thanks so much for spending some time with us. Really, really appreciate it. Just to introduce Peter, I've known Peter for, I'd say, 15 years now. I probably was in the background for a lot of that. I believe he never used to speak to me. And, and that's because he's a bit of a legend in our industry. And I was a bit scared to actually talk to Peter, as it turns out. <laughs> I don't know if you know that or not. However, over the last couple of years, um, we've become... Well, I'd say good mates. I hope you agree. Um, you become a mentor to me. As you know, we've got an accountability group. We meet every Monday and, you know, we discuss our goals and you keep us on track and keep us accountable, which uh, I really love. Um, so P- introduce Peter and his career. Peter has been in the financial services business for a long, long time. Peter is 77 years of age. Peter's taught me a, a few amazing things. He's taught me that gratitude is, is one of the foundational principles of life. Uh, he's taught me that the little things um, are important. Keep your eyes open um, and look for the little things and be grateful for them. So Peter and I met through uh, the Million Dollar Roundtable organisation. So the, for people obviously in the audience don't know what this is, but it, the MDRT was founded in 1927 in America and it's an organisation that represents the top 2% of financial advisors in the world. Peter gave an incredible speech in Miami a couple of years ago, 2019. Peter, I'm going to hand it over to you to tell us a little bit about that speech. Um, I, I listened to it, I watched it again yesterday, and again, I was in tears, damn you. Um, but please, just tell us a little bit about that presentation, um, the content of, it, content of it, if you don't mind. Thanks, Terry, and thanks, Ben. Um, it's certainly nice to be here, and I do appreciate this opportunity. Some six years ago, I uh, 
had an itch on my back and I didn't worry about it. Then I worried about it and then I went to the skin specialist and he said there's nothing there and I went back a few weeks later and I said it's still there and he said no, it's nothing there. So they did all the tests, there's nothing there. And then I went in and I said um, a couple of weeks later, I said, look, remove the itch. And the doctor said, um, how do you remove an itch? And I said, I don't know, it's your problem. And uh, so I signed all the necessary paper because they're not allowed to do that. They're not allowed to just go into skin and see what's underneath. But he went in and he found this little tiny white gristly thing and um, it turned out that it was a very rare form of melanoma. But uh, all was good. I had the lymph nodes taken out and all the margins and that was fine. And then one day, uh, two years later, and I was doing my normal tests, um, I uh, uh, was told I had a bit of an issue. Cut a long story short, uh, I was given six days to live and this very aggressive melanoma had um, invaded my body and I had liver, lung and bone cancer. Um, probably one of the most significant things, which I didn't mention on that uh, speech, I might add, is that when my oncologist said, Peter, you have a big problem, I think you'll be lucky to make more than six days. It's so bad. And I said to her, okay, what are we going to do about that? Now, most people would fall apart if they're told they've got a few days to live. And I said, no. I said, what are we going to do about it? And she said there, look, there's only a couple of things that we can do. Uh, there's a new treatment out, immunotherapy, it's new in Australia. In fact, I was one of the first to have it. Um, I want you to understand that we will look after all the medical issues. I said, yes, I understand that. But you must agree, she said, not to participate in any alternatives. And I said, fine, I'll do that. And she said, now your problem, and you've only got one problem, and that is to stay alive. And I thought, how do you stay alive? Nobody's ever thought, how do you stay alive? They've never had to address that issue. So I went home that night and I worked out some things that I had to do every day to help me stay alive. And, uh, and uh, the first one was that I decided I'd get up, dress up and show up every day and never, never, never give up. The next thing, there'd be no television because television is very negative. Uh, it is something that can overtake your life and absolutely take you nowhere. So no television, no radio, no social media, because they're all negative. Uh, I had to walk 10,000 steps a day, which I was doing at any rate. I had to continue doing that. Um, no sugars, would not participate in eating, eating any sugars whatsoever. Cancer loves um, sugar. Because cancers love sugar. They love, love sugar. So don't eat sugar. That's the answer, of course. Um, but then I did something else, which turned out to be absolutely worthwhile. And that is that I had learnt in years gone by how to do progressive self-relaxation. So every day I would relax. I'd start on my toes and I'd go through all my legs and up to my stomach and my chest and down my arms and my neck and my head. And I would relax and relax, relax and relax. And I'd do this 10, 20 times a day. Now, obviously, I did live longer than six days because I'm here talking to you. But it was interesting because now I found out that one of the best ways to improve your immune system is to relax. And you've got to learn to relax. Now, I don't care how you relax. That's entirely up to you. But you've got to learn how to relax. And I don't care whether it's prayer or whether it's yoga or whether it's um, 
any other thing that you want to do. Mine was progressive self-relaxation. There are many things that you can do to relax, but relaxing is absolutely vital to your health. Relaxing and meditating and all that, that regime you went through, does it give, is it almost a case where it gives your brain a break so it can, it can work on fixing what's happening inside your body? If you, well, it would appear to do that. I don't know, of course. But yeah. basically I'd get to a stage where I'd relax all the body but the hardest thing to relax is your brain. Uh, and it's not that you want your brain to think about nothing. You can't do that. But you've got to be able to control your brain so that when a thought comes in, you dismiss it. Thought comes in, you dismiss it. So if you hear a plane go over, you accept it. But you, you dismiss whatever you can. So relaxation is a really important part of life and I'd encourage everybody to get involved in learning how to do progressive self-relaxation. I do it every day. I get up in the morning and I do my long version. I do that twice a day, one in the morning, one at night. And then during the day, I do the short version. Now, the bottom line is that if you do a lot of relaxation, you learn very quickly how to do a short version. And you can do it instantaneously. And you can do it anywhere, I suppose. You can switch yeah, it oh, yeah, I do it all the time. Yeah. Uh, do it on the train, do it on the plane, do it um, sitting at home. Um, I don't watch any television, so I don't have to worry about that. But I certainly do it whenever I can. So relaxation is a vital part of survival. Absolutely vital. Going back to the doctor said, if, when the doctor said you've got six days to live, did you just go straight into this ain't happening mode, I'm going to get through this, or, or was part of you thinking about, geez, I better start tidying up my affairs and having, having your own pity party, or you just, that's, let's go, it's time, it's time for the fight of my life. And I'm- I've learned over the years that you've just got to go for it. And I said to her, what can we do about that? And when you adopt that approach to any particular problem, you're always taking a positive approach to solving the problem. I didn't think about the negatives. Sure, when I got home, I thought about the negatives and I had a process of solving the problem because I decided that the best thing I could do was to die broke. And so I did everything at that stage so that I could die broke. And and so... Did you buy a Ferrari or your dream car? What no, 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 no. And I'd already had myself well organised you know, financially. Peter, Peter is an amazing goal setter, and you can probably pick up already that you know, Peter, once he sets his mind to something, he just gets into it and does it. Peter, you've, I know you've got an incredible morning routine. I've, I've got a pretty incredible morning routine as well. I think yours is a lot better than mine. <laughs> but we share very similar traits, and I'm a lot younger than Peter, so I'm glad I'm doing it. You know, when I'm this age even when you know, it's a really busy time of my life, but a morning routine is incredibly important. And could you just quickly tell us about your morning routine? Well, I get up every morning before six and uh, I get up at 5.55 actually and my alarm goes off on my wristwatch and I'm out of bed in a flash. And a lot of people out there wouldn't know that there are two 5.55s on the clock. They know about the one in the afternoon, but they don't know about the one in the morning. But the important thing about getting up early is that you get a head start on the rest of the world and you are eons in front of other people because you have time to do things in the quietness of the day. So the first thing I do is to get up, I go into the bathroom and I have a large glass of water. Now the reason for that is simple, that your brain is mainly water and when you sleep at night, the, the, the uh, moisture disappears from the brain. 
So you need to go and refresh it all in the morning. So a glass of water is really important. But then I go down and into my office and I sit there and I go through my relaxation procedure. And, and it might sound silly to do that, but it's really important to do that. Even though I've been asleep for six or seven or eight hours, uh, I actually stop and I relax my toes and I go through my whole body just relaxate, relaxing it. I then sit down and I visualise my day. So what am I going to do? Who am I going to see? What do I think the conversations will be about? What do I need to plan, etc.? so that I have a good picture in my mind as to what my day is going to be like. Retirement is about lifestyle. In other words, most people, when they get to age 60 or 65, they're going to live 30 years. Now, how the heck do you fill in 30 years? Now, 30 (laughs) years means nothing. But if I were to say to you that 30 years is 11,000 days, you think, oh, dear, that's a lot to do. So you've got to fill in a lot of time in retirement. So what are you going to do? The sad part is that the average Australian retiree, it's the same in New Zealand, Canada and America, have done, done the research. The average retiree watches screen time nine hours a day. I do not doubt that. I do not doubt. Now, I know, I know I'm told by my, my clients' uh, uh, children that I'm wrong, it's 15 hours a day. But at any rate, let's say nine hours a day, and that is uh, watching television, or being influenced by television, you've got your phone, you've got your iPad, you've got your tablet and you've got your computer and you're watching the movies and you're going to the football on television, all this type of stuff, nine hours a day. Now, let's put that into perspective. If you live 11,000 days, you're going to sleep eight hours a day and then you've got, you know, a bit of time to shop and do all those things you have to do. So there's only 176,000 hours of waking hours and most retirees spend 99,000 hours watching or influenced by screens. That is insane. And so that's why I teach people. I teach people how to retire because in retirement there are 60 things that people need to think about before they retire and after they've been retired. One of those is money. And I teach the other 59. This is why Peter is, is, I see him as such a mentor and so important. Um, Nine hours a day watching TV in retirement? Are you kidding? Peter goes out and walks and he, he observes everything. Peter's, he sent me photos in the past of little flowers that he's looking at and, and, I'm, and I'm like, oh, that's really lo- nice, Pete, nice flower. Thanks for the photo. And he goes, no, look look closer. And inside the flower will be another, a droplet of water uh, reflecting the other flowers around it. He does, he does things like this. He notices. And I, I guess that's because you've been so close to not being here that you appreciate every single waking minute of every day. And, and what a not blessing. Not really, no, because I've always done that. Because I have learned, and we're getting back to the morning procedure, <laughs> that conscious observation is really important for everyone to get involved in. So that's, Absolutely. that's seeing, that's touching, that's smelling, that's hearing, all of those things we need to do every day. So Terry and I were out for a walk this morning. When you're out there, you look around and you look at the trees, you look at the anthills, you look at every single thing that's out there. Now, when you're doing that, you can't think about work. And so relaxing the brain is a really important part of the, of the morning procedure. Uh, and just as a matter of interest, continuing the morning procedure, I then have a, uh, a set of key things that I want to do every day. Now, I have my goals as well, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about today. What do I need to do today? to make it successful. Uh, 
and to just cap that off, I finish the day with a closed-down procedure. So I've got a start-up procedure and a closed-down procedure because if you want to sleep well, make certain you've closed the day out. Now, you can you can write your diaries and you can thanks, Ben, very much for writing um, the, the manual that you've told me to do. Uh, and there's a lot of things that you can do to close it down so that when you go to bed, out like a light. And you do sleep and you sleep well because you've got nothing to worry about. And morning start-up procedure and evening close-down procedure are a critical part of life and I don't care how old you are. It's really important to get that right. Absolutely. Well, I just finished a book called Why We Sleep and a really big part of that book was talking about how melatonin, you know, the chemical that helps you fall asleep, doesn't actually get released as efficiently if you're thinking about other things consciously. If you're thinking about work or you're thinking about your stresses, your body naturally doesn't want to go to sleep because it thinks that you know, there's all this stuff I've got to do. I'm kind of in this mode where I've got to get stuff done. You know, I'm energized. It's not bedtime. But in reality, if you do what you said, you know, you have that reset, that shutdown, because your body naturally wants to have a good sleep ready for the next day. Well, it does, but a lot of people struggle. Now, maybe Absolutely. not for younger people, but for older people, they struggle terribly. I'll tell you something funny, actually. Younger people do struggle with it. It's called sleep procrastination. Have you ever heard of that? It's how many times have you walked into like your kid's room or your friend's room and they're on their phone in bed. And for whatever reason, it's a psychological thing where people don't want to sleep because they don't subconsciously want to wake up tomorrow to deal with whatever they want to deal with. So people, especially young kids, they're, you know, they're lacking motivation or whatever it is. So they just sit on their phone on TikTok or YouTube watching for hours and hours in bed, you know. When do, when, I was thinking about this the other night. When does that, when does that habit of you know, screen time end? Does it end when you're 30? Uh, and then when you're 40, when you're 50, when you're 80, like I'm so worried that um, you know, kids, you know, especially younger kids that have just spent so much time on their screens, I know you've heard it, they're missing out on a lot, but but I'm serious, they are missing out on life. It is no Absolutely. joke. Absolutely. And, and I reckon that one of their goals in their life will be, to, oh, I'm, I'm going to get off my screen at some point. Yeah, that, that'll be is. the new goal setting. Oh, you look know? at social media detoxes. I'm going to take 30 days off social media. It's like, why are you even in a position where that is something you have to think about? And I think that the problem, the problem is this, that people do not sit down and think about, now let's take television, which is the, let's say, the broadest uh, form of social media that's around and screen time. But I have asked hundreds of people at all the talks I give, can you tell me the one thing that you have learnt from television that has been so compelling that it's changed your life? <laughs> Nobody can ever Nothing. tell me anything. And therefore, Nothing. by definition, it's a waste of time. Now, they'll say, oh, I need to relax. Well, you can relax any other way. It, it's, it's an excuse to sit down and watch a lot of television, as it is with screen time, as it is with all the Netflix and everything else. It's just a, an excuse to get away from the realities of life. And we've got to somehow decide that, no, we are in control of our own lives and we have to make that decision to stop doing things. And uh, it's like... Stopping yourself from driving fast. It's like stopping yourself from drinking too much alcohol. Like conscious, stopping conscious yourself decision. From taking drugs or anything like that. We must consciously decide not to do things. It doesn't come naturally. We've got to consciously do it. I think that's the same as what you're saying about when you're walking, though. You have to switch off the automate, like the automatic setting that we live in and actually consciously decide to do things, whether it's looking at the flowers or looking at the anthills or you know, turning off the TV, whatever it is, it's you know, as engaging. As, as we've been talking and traditionally, normally this is kind of a faith-based podcast and I'm not sure what your faith is and it doesn't really matter. Um, but I think for people that have faith and 
way Peter lives his life, the way he notices things and appreciates nature and, and the really small things, I reckon Jesus will be pretty happy with him. You know, there, there, are, there are people that think faith is about attending church and, you know, and trying to climb the ladder to heaven, I suppose, but I think uh, God or the creator or whoever you believe in probably look at Peter and say thank you for appreciating what I've done and, and thank you for appreciating the life I've given you. So let me summarise something that would help the listeners. It is critical in life that we create the circumstances, we recreate the memories that one day we may need to rely upon. Now, my sister told me that. She was dying of cancer and we used to sit down together um, and talk and she got weaker and weaker and she got became a, para, a paraplegic and then a quadriplegic. And we would talk about the things that she had done or I had done and we would just talk and talk and she'd say, well, let's talk about London. So we'd talk about London. Then we'd talk about Calcutta. I haven't been to Calcutta. It's not called Calcutta now, but... Uh, Calcutta in those days. Yeah. I hadn't been there. So she'd tell me all about Calcutta. And then I, I would talk about New York. She hadn't been to New York, so I'd talk about in great detail. In great detail. Now, the important thing is this, that we are all creating memories. Whether you remember it or not, it's another thing. But we all have an opportunity to create memories. And one day you're going to need those memories. And you don't know when that is going to be. Just as it is with my sickness. I mean, I was a perfectly healthy guy having a wonderful time and all of a sudden I get six days to live. I mean, where the heck does that come from? And so you need to, in those circumstances, have a memory bank that you can rely on and think about and go back and, you know, be it memories about raising your children or you know, going to Sunday school or whatever it might be, what is it that creates this wonderful memory? So I reckon that's one of your foundation principles and it probably goes to the way you observe the little things. So you... If you ever do need to rely on these memories, um, they're there in great detail because you've taken the time to observe. Peter, as you know, I've got a whole bunch of life rules that I live by and I I read them every single morning. They're my guiding principles. And that's one of them, that lesson you taught me, that it's your responsibility to create exceptional events as one day you may need to rely on them. I always remember that. Yeah, and it is so true. It is really, really true. And let, you know, a lot of these people listening will have parents and grandparents that are in the stage of life that I'm in. And I can assure you that when you get there, you will suddenly decide whether you've done a good job or not getting there. And all of us need to continually develop that. Even now at 77, I'm still doing that. Uh, For example, each morning I go out and during the day, um, we've all heard of magpies. Now, magpies are terrible things. They attack you. They bite your head. They do everything. No, they don't. I feed magpies and I've got seven families that I feed around my district and every morning, much to the absolute amazement of people coming in the other direction walking along, these magpies come to my feet and talk to me. (laughs) They sing to me and they're so happy and they're so beautiful. So I give them a little food. Some of them sit on my shoulder, some of them sit on my knee. doesn't matter. I talk to them. Now, the message is this. Most people are wrong most of the time and that is that magpies are dangerous. And I can assure you that if you do what I do, for example, feed them, they'll never attack you. Why would they attack somebody who's feeding them? It just doesn't make sense. It's actually a great lesson, isn't it? (laughs) And and the point is this, that most people, and this is true, are wrong most of the time. Now, that's where you should stop and think, okay, what can I do to make certain that I'm more likely to be correct? And that's the type of thing that needs to go on all the time. It's like what you're reading in um, The Simple Life. 
is all of what he talks about is this idea of like the consumer, consumer culture, you know, where you're, you're buying things because you think you need them and you're not actually questioning the reasons why you have the things in your life that you do. You know, it stems from minimalism as well, but it's like, why do I need 500 different outfits in my closet? Like, why don't I just have five that I understand why I need them? Okay. You know, that's my winter jacket. I need that because it's cold. I don't need four different styles of winter jackets for when it's winter outside. You know, it's, it's just questioning and engaging and you know, deciding what you have in your life and the reasons why. All right. I want to go back, go backwards in time, right? In the podcast. All right. So uh, the MDRT conference in Miami, Peter, um, I was in the audience People probably wouldn't understand the scope of this thing. You get people from around, I think it's about 80 countries coming into the into the arena. You walk into the place, there uh, it's it's like a football field. Um, it, it contains about 15,000 people. At the front of the stage, there are gigantic screens across the whole whole, whole front of it. Um, when Peter gave his speech, and we, we, unfortunately, we're not allowed to put a link in the in the show notes because of it's copyrighted. However. Um, it was incredibly emotional and, and I'm not kidding when I say 15,000 people had a tear in their eye and were very emotional. There were people in front of me that were literally weeping. Um, they were from Asia, an Asian country and so I was coming through the translation and still they got the message. And um, I didn't really know you all that well back then, Peter, but proud to, I was the number one up there on stage and number two that I've, I've come to meet you. It was just uh, incredible. It's actually funny. I think me and Peter actually spoke more closely than you did first. Mm-hmm. We, um, we sat next to each other at one of the MDRT events yeah. right up the front. And I remember, yeah, we were chatting about the videos that you have on your website about retirement and, and drug addiction or, or something like that. And um, I remember I spoke to you and you're like, who are you talking to? Oh, Peter Graham. He's like, oh, I know him. He spoke at, at, the, at the main platform. And to me, you were just you know, a normal guy in MDRT. I didn't know that you had such a big privilege, you know. Was that the first time you told your story you know, on stage or had you said a speech like that before? Yeah, I, I must say I'm a fairly private guy. I don't tell many people these things um, simply because there's no need to. It's important to me and important to my close friends, but that's about it. Uh, but it really was quite a feeling to stand on the stage and see, I don't know, you say 15,000 people there. They all stood up, couldn't believe it, and they're crying, clapping. Oh, it's just unbelievable. And... Interestingly enough, it took me two hours to get out of the room because there was this queue a mile long of people who wanted to come up and talk. And I'm still talking to those people years later, um, not so much by phone but certainly or in person, definitely not in person, but uh, emails and just little notes that they send me and how you're going and this type of thing. So it's really good to have that that group of people. Um, and this group called the Million Dollar Roundtable is very special. There's a special part of Million Dollar Membership which is really important and any all the listeners can take this and do it. And that is that if you learn how to share your information and knowledge without any limitations, just share it, you will become a better person and there's a chance that the other people will become better people as well. And so MDRT has this principle, not a principle, I suppose, um, I don't know, a habit or something, where we literally share everything and it's so important to do that and not say, oh, I'm not going to tell that somebody might make more money than I do. Oh, all that. It's just a nonsense. I mean, even right now, though, like you're generously sharing your story and your wisdom that you've learned over 78 years. Like not many people are willing to do that to the level that you do. I mean, even the reflection on you, 
Like how many things have you come to me after work and said, Peter told me this awesome exercise with squares and dots and how to do my to-do list and I'm changing this in my morning routine oh, and X, Y, Z, all these different things. Look, if you can't, if I think if you if you if you can't learn off people like Peter, if you can't learn from people like Peter, I think you're just arrogant. Like seriously, if you think you've got it all worked out, you know, I get I get the privilege of talking to Peter once a week, a, a guy that's been so close to not being here, and it just turns on my gratitude. Um, trigger every time. Every time I think of him, I think of how grateful I am for everything. I want to change things around a little bit. So the audience is pretty young in this in this listening group. And one thing I've noticed is that young people hate to make phone calls. They literally struggle to pick up the phone and actually talk to somebody on the phone. More than happy to text, more than happy to Snapchat and whatever and message. And I think that the art of making an actual phone call is, is being lost. And I remember, was it Tim Ferriss's book? That quote where he said um, it was a person's success is direct proportion to the, to the amount of tough phone calls they make. Yeah. And so it's the person that can just pick up the phone, even though it's confronting and it's scary, and have a conversation with somebody uh, is the winner and usually will be the most successful. And you know what? The bottom line is it's never as scary as you think it's going to be. So, Peter, could you talk a little bit about uh, – we spoke about it in a bushwalk this morning, but – uh, importance of actually picking up the phone and connecting with people. I think it's important that we do that because they won't do it. One thing about life is that people do not know how to talk to other people very well. Uh, and I can remember all, all this started years ago, I was uh, with a psychologist uh, in Chicago and he said to me, what's your biggest fear, Peter? And I said, I'm shy, I am dreadfully shy. And he said, do you want to solve the problem? I said, yeah, sure. Ten minutes later, the problem was completely solved. And I do it every day now, he taught me, and it works. And that is, must learn how to talk to people. Now, I'm, it doesn't matter whether it's on the phone or whether it's in person, but you must learn how to create conversation. Every single person wants to talk, but they don't know how to start a conversation. So the people that learn how to start a conversation correctly are the ones who will progress in life. Because, well, to start with, you must get to know people who know more than you do. And unless you actually ask them, they won't know that you want to know these things. But if you ask them, they'll say, yeah, sure. Well, how come a really successful person can take the time to tell you what is simple? Nobody else asks them. That's why. Successful people find there's a dearth of people who want to talk to them because everyone assumes that they're so busy and they haven't got time and all the rest of it. And I have learned over the years to just, just ring people up and say, listening to you the other day on such and such, thank you very much, it's been terrific, I've really enjoyed it. Wondering if we could have a coffee. Sure, they say. You'll be amazed at what will happen if you just ring people up or talk to them in the street, or on a train, or on a plane, I don't care where it is, learn how to talk to people so that you can create conversation. And I'll say it again, the important part about it is that they want to do it, but they don't know how to start. You do it. Like for the younger people, that they're never gonna get taught this stuff. How do they do it? How does, how does a 17 year old person pick up the phone and talk to a boy that she likes, or to a potential employer, or to their teacher? How do they do it? What are the techniques that you use to get over that fear well, factor? Terry, you and I know there's a little statement around called the wisdom of the question. And the wisdom is in asking the right question. 
We all must learn to ask the right question, which will elicit a response, right? You've got a very special so, technique for this, yeah, don't you? <laughs> and so what happens is people go up and they say, how think, are think, you? Yeah, and I think they my dog's say, trying to start a conversation right now with another yeah, dog. Yeah, <laughs> don't want the dog's happy. It's all part of the deal. Don't worry about it. Um, when people say to somebody, how are you, they get the most brilliant answer of all times, fine. <laughs> that's true. Now, that's gone nowhere, that conversation. So the wisdom of the question is this, that we must learn to ask questions that will elicit an answer that will keep the conversation going. So if you go to somebody and you say, uh, you look terrific, they won't go anywhere either. But if you said to them, wow, you keep yourself fit, how do you do it? They will tell you. And all of a sudden you've got a conversation. For example, I walk every day and I walk a long way every day. I'm, I walk 10 kilometres a day and I talk to every single person I meet now. A lot of people don't talk back. You know, they're in their phone or they'll suddenly look some other direction or they don't want to talk to you or whatever. That's fine. That's their problem, not my problem. That's their problem. But the people who do answer are happy to talk. And so when I'm wandering along and I'll talk to someone, now I've found, for example, the easiest person, people to talk to are people who own dogs. <laughs> Let's talk about so the dog. if there's a dog coming along, I'll say hello to the person, then I'll say hello to the dog. Now, I don't know the dog's name. So every dog I meet is called Killer. That's what you said so, to, to yeah, Paris this morning. <laughs> and every dog, I say, g'day, Killer. Now, the dog knows exactly who I'm talking to and what it's about. He doesn't know what I've said, but he understands it. Now, what happens is if you start doing that with, with animals or people, asking questions, you will find that it'll start to elicit conversation. Uh, for example, simple, if you just say, look, um, I was wondering if you could help me. I, I want to get to um, such and such a place. Which is the best way to go? Or how do I do it? Or whatever the case may be. And so you can ask them about, um, but you don't say, isn't it a lovely day? Because they say yes, right? Uh, and you might say, when was the last time you saw a beautiful day like this? And they'll stop and say, oh, yeah. It's and all of a sudden you're in a conversation. So learning how to ask the correct questions is really, really important. Now, young people do not talk to me, right? So when I see young people, I always look away or look up at their phone or whatever the case may be. Now, my suggestion is that that is rather silly. I would suggest that if you're going along and you see somebody walking towards you and they look friendly and you know, they're dressed correctly, et cetera, et cetera, just say, you know, uh, good morning or a lovely day or something like that. Now, I'm not saying that's going to create a conversation, but what's important are you, is that you are learning how to talk to people so that when the right opportunity comes, you're already practised in talking to people so that when you want to talk to someone about a, 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 an opportunity or a, a business deal or a good idea or something like that, you know how to talk to people. Isn't it funny? Isn't it funny, Peter, that a lot of the people, the audience will look up to, you know, celebrities and movie stars and, and singers and whatever else, guess what? They're all great at talking to people, aren't they? They're skilled in it. And I'm sure they didn't pick up their first acting job by sending a text message to, to somebody. I'm sure they turned up and spoke to that person, looked them in the eye. It's a lost art. If you can find that art, it go a long, long way in life. Be and key look, to success. sending lots of text messages and emails, that's, it's a way of getting something across, but you don't get much across. And it's a nonsense way of staying in touch with people. You know, for example, I tend to ring people up and just ask them, you know, um, 
is there anything I can do for you or how are you going or what's happening here or whatever the case may be. It can be a very short conversation or it can be a longer conversation if they want to make it longer, not you. They want to make it longer. And it's in, it's a habit that you've got to get into to talk to people. Peter's, must Peter, learn how Peter's to an expert at it. When he calls me, he never says, how are, how, how are you today? He, he will say, tell me something, tell me something, tell me, tell me, what do you say? Tell me something. Tell me something special that's happened to you this week. It'll be something like that. And you can't not engage with that. What are you going to say to that? And immediately it gets you thinking and sometimes it's like, huh. It's, it's an incredible way to uh, start a conversation. I have a friend whose go-to question is, what's got you excited at the moment? How do you respond to someone saying, nothing? It's like <laughs> you're the boringest person in the world then. You know, it's, you start thinking about yourself, what's the cool things that's happening in my life that I, I'd be happy to share with you, you know? It's a really cool question actually. So we must remember... The wisdom is in the question, not in the answer. Speaking of good questions, I actually have a question that we tend to ask most of our guests on the show. It's kind of becoming a bit of a routine, to be honest. Most of our guests are younger. So the question we ask them is, if you're sitting in a room across from your older self, what advice would you give them? I'm going to pose the same question to you, but if you're in a room sitting across from your younger self, what advice would you give them? I'd say yes more than no would be one of the things I'd do. Now, I'm not talking about silly things, but... In fact, Terry and I were talking about that this morning as we were wandering along. And I can remember years ago I was at an event and um, I was introduced to someone and he was from Nepal. And so we chatted a little time. We were called to the dinner table and he, in the middle of the dinner, he just said, Peter, at which time everybody stopped. And I said, yes. And he said, what are you doing on Christmas Day? And I said... I don't know, what have you got in mind? And he said, Mount Everest Base Station. And I looked at my son and I said, what do you think, Ben? And he said, yeah, that'll be great. And so off we went. Now, all that happened in February and we had time to get ready and all the rest of it. But the point about it is I said yes, I didn't say no. And, and it's often wise to say yes knowing that you can say no later. Now, I'm not saying you do it with everything. You know, somebody comes along and says, look, got this wonderful thing you can sniff? The answer is no, right? Uh, and it's really interesting that um, we all have temptation the whole time, but we're smart enough to work out which are the things you can say yes to, right? And it's amazing what can happen once you say yes or get in the habit of saying yes a lot, and and that's what I've done over a period of time. That goes back to the five-second rule by Mel Robbins, right, where, where you know, Soon your brain will, will try and your brain will make an emotional decision almost every time. So uh, she uses a technique where you have a circuit breaker and you count backwards five to one and it gives your brain a chance to switch from the emotional part of your brain to the illogical part of your brain so you can make a logical uh, decision. It's a great technique, isn't it? Well, I it's use that amazing. all the time. Um, I wouldn't say regularly, but when I need to. For example, if I don't want to get out of bed, I will say five, four, three, two, one, out of bed, and what happens when you when you do that is that movement changes everything. And so if you're sitting down on the computer or watching television or anything like that and you know you shouldn't be doing it, just say to yourself, five, four, three, two, one, stand up and move and the movement changes your world, right? And so it's, it's important to do that whenever you are in a, a, um, in a rut, it's just, I'm not saying you know what you're going to do. I'm just saying start moving. Because once you start the body moving, 
your brain starts working. Oh, and then it all comes together. Yeah, can you use that technique when you're in a position of, you know, you're nervous about something or you're fearful? You know, it's you've got to get your brain out of that emotional part that's, you know, creating all the anxiety. And if you do that circuit break, the five, four, three, two, one, and then move, the key is to move, physically move, like you've got to get up or, or do something. That's the key to it all. But everything flips, you know, from being deeply emotional about things to more of a logical approach, and it can help a lot. Very true. And it's so weird how just that quick five seconds makes the world of difference. You don't, you don't realise how much of a, uh, you know, like a flow on your emotional side of your brain is. As soon as you get one thing in your head, it just starts feeding and feeding and feeding and feeding. So what takes is that? So the lesson switch? that you'd give your younger self, if, you're, if the, your younger self is sitting across the room from you, I'm sure you've got many, and we put you on the spot because it's, it's a pretty important question. But um, what is it again? What, what is your number one rule that you give oh, to your younger there's, self? There's no number one rule, but there are many. Here's another one, uh, and this happened to me years ago. Um, I was sitting in the office and the phone rang, and it was the ABC saying, um, we've decided we want you to do a talkback radio program. Now, this is going back at a stage when they didn't exist in Canberra, didn't exist. And I said, oh, look, just a little busy. Uh, who told you that I could? And he said, oh, such and such. So, look, a bit busy at the moment. I'll ring you back in a couple of minutes. And he said, that's fine. So I rang this other guy up and I said, why? I didn't ask any other question. I just said, why me? And he said, Peter, it is very simple. And this is the message. If you can't verbalise your knowledge, you don't know it. Now... Those people out there doing university courses or education or I've got all this wealth of knowledge, if you don't verbalise it, you don't know it. So learning how to verbalise your knowledge is really important in life and and this is the problem. There's a lot of people with degrees and, and great qualifications and they're, they're not doing anything. Their life is going nowhere because they haven't learned how to verbalise what they know and it's the verbalising that makes the difference. So that's another hint that I would suggest people. It's funny, do. it's funny you say that because I only graduated pretty recently, finished up my degrees, and we obviously had to do lots of presentations throughout the degree. And the people that struggled with it, they were always trying to memorize everything, trying to learn as much as they could. I said, guys, if you just understand the core premises of what you're trying to say really well, you'll have no problem telling it to someone else because you know it so through and through. It's not this, I have to remember everything word for word so that I can just regurgitate it onto you. I'm like, that's just proving to me that you know how to get one thing from your eyes out your mouth. You know, you're not actually processing what you're learning and sharing that information. That's what, that's what, the, that's what they're after, isn't it? That's, that's actually, Peter's right. That's, that's knowing it, you know, knowing it properly. If you can verbalise it, articulate it, you know it very well. Don't have, you don't have to recall it in your brain or look at it or read it. It's there. It is, yeah. but you've got to get that knowledge. We all know so much, but how are you going to pass that on to people and pass it on in a meaningful way? Um, it's no use reading a book um, that you read when you were doing your, your Bachelor of Science. Everyone's going to go, oh, time to go to sleep. But if you can turn it into an interesting story or a way of presenting it, people love it. That's what we've got to learn to do with our knowledge, present it in a way that creates excitement and interest. It's always been interesting. But the other thing that I will say is this. I'm happy to talk to any of your listeners if they've got any queries. Thank you very much. Right. Where can they find you, by the way? They contact you. Contact me to contact you. Got it. <laughs> we'll, we'll, Filtering we'll mechanism. I <laughs> know. No, just let, you know, just give them my phone number. Let me know what's happening and I'll talk to them. I do this all the time. I'm, I'm always talking to people uh, that ask interesting questions and it's fascinating to do that. 
because I've got a little bit of knowledge and I'm happy to share it because that's how I got to where I am because people shared their knowledge with me. Yeah, thank you so much, Peter. It's been an absolute privilege, mate. I'm so glad you are my friend. And uh, I'll just finish by saying that that invitation is is serious. And Peter, although he's not a psychologist or a counsellor, should be, um, but um, he's there. He's he's a, he's a father figure, so feel free to reach out. And Peter, I'm sure, will be happy to help. Thank you, so my I'll friend. I'll just finish up with one thing, yeah. if you don't mind. Absolutely. Here is something that people can follow all the time. It can become a mantra. That is, that doubt kills the magnificent. Folks, I know this episode was a bit longer than usual. We were pretty tempted to break it down into two parts, but I know how amazing this conversation was and everyone hates it when their favourite show ends on a cliffhanger, right? In case you haven't been listening, Peter is a tremendous person with a lifetime of wisdom. Peter has graciously offered to chat with any of you anytime about anything. If you'd love to have your own conversation with Peter, please feel free to get in touch with any of us here at A Love Like This and we'll be sure to put you in touch. Take care and we hope you enjoyed this absolutely amazing conversation with Peter Graham.